Whether Jesus Should Have Washed the Feet of Judas. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. And I feel like I should say up front that this particular question for Walk the Earth was inspired pretty directly by Max Lucado. Max Lucado has been a past different drummer on the Inappropriate Conversations podcast going back to the beginning of March 2014. That episode was looking at small church group, small group settings, the Curcio movement. I think I called it gathering around the campfire because that's literally a piece of it. And some of these short devotional works that Max Licato has done over the years have been pretty impactful to me. Some of them are short and not that deep because of their length. But every now and then he'll put one out there that kind of stops me in my tracks. And that happened here recently in the month of December. At uh, maxlicato.com slash listen, there's an episode of his uh, short podcast with the text written as a blog called The Secret of Forgiveness from December 26, 2016, beginning with the statement, you will never forgive anyone more than God has already forgiven you. And uh, the question, is it still hard to consider the thought of forgiving the one who hurt you? And he bases this entire piece on John chapter 13. And I think I want to go in the direction that Lucado has gone and ask some of those questions. But then as I so often do on Walk the Earth, turn it on its head. And instead of looking from within the church out to the world with an accusing pointing finger, perhaps I'll recognize the three fingers pointing back at you when you point a finger in someone else's direction and follow that direction back toward the church and say, hey, we've got some questions of our own to answer here in terms of what we convey to the world about grace and forgiveness. And I think this is the exact right passage to look at this time of year. So my intent is for this Walk the Earth question to come out just around Palm Sunday of year 2018. And in a week, if things go well, I'll have a short Inappropriate Conversations episode focused on Easter. If I remember back to the very beginning, uh, 2010, uh, starting in March and knowing that in that time of year, uh, I was right around the corner from both Palm Sunday and Easter, doing episodes in the first handful of Inappropriate Conversations recordings that were focused on Palm Sunday and Easter. This may be, though, for Walk the Earth, a unique perspective on Palm Sunday that Walk the Earth has answered Easter-related questions before, and I've placed an emphasis, an appropriate emphasis, on Easter and Pentecost. But this one, looking at maybe even more than just Palm Sunday, but looking forward a little bit to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday even, Taking John's Gospel, chapter 13, in its entirety as our starting point. But again, those who may have questions about whether or not a religiously focused podcast beginning with an entire chapter of one of the Gospels in the New Testament is going to address issues the way that might be of interest to a more broad set of listeners, please stick with me. I will, to hint a little bit, take this in the direction of what it means for a church to be affirming and what it means for a person whether a religious person or not, to be an ally. 
That is how I intend to answer today's question of whether or not it was appropriate for Jesus to have washed the feet of Judas. Judas being the disciple who betrayed him, which of course, in the narrative of Christianity, is what this time of year is all about. As Lent begins to wind up, and we begin a period of time from Palm Sunday through to Easter Sunday. And this story is being told at the point of the Last Supper. John chapter 13 from the Good News Translation. It was now the day before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He had always loved those in the world who were his own, and he loved them to the very end. Jesus and his disciples were at supper. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, the thought of betraying Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew that he had come from God and was going to God, so he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, and tied a towel around his waist. He then poured some water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel around his waist. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Are you going to wash my feet, Lord? Jesus answered him, You do not understand now what I am doing, but you will understand later. Peter declared, Never at any time will you wash my feet. If I do not wash your feet, Jesus answered, you will no longer be my disciple. Simon Peter answered, Lord, do not wash only my feet then. Wash my hands and head too. Jesus said, Those who have taken a bath are completely clean and do not have to wash themselves except for their feet. All of you are clean except one. Jesus already knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, All of you except one are clean. After Jesus had washed their feet, he put his outer garment back on and returned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I have just done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and it is right that you do so, because that is what I am. I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. You, then, should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you, so you will do just what I have done for you. I am telling you the truth. No slaves are greater than their master, and no messengers are greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know this truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. I'm not talking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But scripture must come true that says, The man who shared my food turned against me. I tell you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. I am telling you the truth. Whoever receives anyone I send receives me also. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. After Jesus had said this, he was deeply troubled and declared openly, I am telling you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked at one another, completely puzzled about whom he meant. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was sitting next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him and said, Ask him who he is talking about. So that disciple moved closer to Jesus' side and said, Who is it, Lord? Jesus answered, I will dip some bread in the sauce and give it to him. He is the man. So he took a piece of bread, dipped it, and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, Hurry and do what you must. None of the others at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was in charge of the money bag, some of the disciples thought that Jesus had told him 
to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Judith accepted the bread and went out at once. It was night. After Judas had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man's glory is revealed. Now God's glory is revealed through him. And if God's glory is revealed through him, then God will reveal the glory of the Son of Man in himself, and he will do so at once. My children, I will not be with you very much longer. You will look for me, but I tell you now what I told the Jewish authorities. You cannot go where I am going. And now I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. Where are you going, Lord? Simon Peter asked him. You cannot follow me now where I am going, answered Jesus, but later you will follow me. Lord, why can't I follow you now? asked Peter. I am ready to die for you. Jesus answered, Are you really ready to die for me? I am telling you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will say three times that you don't know me. John chapter 13, in its entirety. And part of the reason to answer this question, I needed to share it in its entirety, is that the passage in context answers some questions. It undercuts the notion that, well, maybe Jesus didn't really wash the feet of Judas. It doesn't say explicitly, then Jesus came to Judas and washed Judas's feet. But that's clearly a false reading of the scripture, as Max Lucado covered in that December 26th article on his website, The Secret of Forgiveness. Lucado writes this, John 13 verse 12 says, When he had finished washing their feet, please note, he finished washing their feet. That means he left no one out. Why is that important? Because that means he washed the feet of Judas. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. That's not to say it was easy for Jesus. That's not to say it's going to be easy for you either. That is to say that God will never call you to do what he hasn't already done. That's a piece of the daily devotional podcast from Max Lucado. I've cited that before, but I named Lucado a different drummer in Inappropriate Conversations number 140. It's not the first time Lucado has written on this particular question, though, and I think that's kind of interesting. I want to go to a Facebook post that I saw when I was searching for more material or more background, and once again, I just happened to find Lucado's point of view on this. It's an article that a Facebook page called Dixon CP Classics posted July 11th, 2015, with the title, Wet Feet. And let me give Lucado the last of his words here, and Then I'll turn to my perspective on this question of what it means to take seriously him telling us to go and do likewise. Here's what Lucado wrote in that previous article. Retaliation has its appeal, but Jesus has a better idea. John 13 records the events of the final night before Jesus' death. He and his followers had gathered in the upper room for Passover. John begins his narrative with a lofty statement. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. John chapter 13, verse 3, New Living Translation. Jesus knew the who and why of his life. Who was he? God's Son. Why was he on earth? To serve the Father. Jesus knew his identity and authority. Quote, So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that he had around them. 
John 13, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, CEO, head coach, king of the world, sovereign of the seas, washed feet. Those are appositives presented to us by Lucado. Just make that clear. Even Judas, the lying, conniving, greedy rat who sold Jesus down the river for a pocket of cash. Jesus won't wash his feet, will he? Lucado asks. I sure hope not. If, if he washes the feet of Judas, then you will have to wash the feet of yours. Your Judas. Your betrayer. That ne'er-do-well, that good-for-nothing villain. Jesus' Judas walked away with 30 pieces of silver. Your Judas walked away with your virginity, security, spouse, job, childhood, retirement, investments. You expect me to wash his feet and let him go? Most people don't want to. They use the villain's photo as a dark target. Their Vesuvius blows up every now and then, sending hate airborne, polluting and stinking the world. Most people keep a pot of anger on low boil. Speaking as Greg, I know I'm guilty of all of the above there from time to time. But Lucado says this, You aren't most people. Grace has happened to you. Look at your feet. They are wet, grace-soaked. Your toes and arches and heels have felt the cool basin of God's grace. Jesus has washed the grimiest parts of your life. He didn't bypass you and carry the basin towards someone else. If your grace were a wheat field, he's bequeathed you the state of Kansas. Can't you share your grace with others? Quoting Jesus, Since I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. John 13, verses 14 and 15. To accept grace is to accept the vow to give it. That's Max Lucado. And to be honest with you, it's a very fair statement to suggest that Max Lucado has fully and completely answered the question of whether or not it was acceptable, whether or not it was appropriate, whether or not it was even planned and intentional for Jesus to have washed the feet of Judas. Now, we're dealing with a church today that suffers from a very deadly case of rampant literalism. There are people who believe this passage may only apply at certain Monday Thursday services in certain Protestant congregations like the uh, the United Union of Brethren churches, where it really only applies to washing feet. And the other 364 days a year, it doesn't mean what it says it means. But clearly that's not the case. Jesus goes on later in the passage I shared in context through all of John chapter 13 to say, hey, it's, it's really about loving one another. That people will only know who the disciples of Christ are by their love for one another. And if we don't extend that love, if we don't share the grace that God has given with us so freely that it includes the feet of Judas, for example, then we're not following his example any day of the year. Not just the Thursday between Palm Sunday and Easter. So no, we're not supposed to take the, the washing of feet literally. There's enough cultural evidence to suggest that this is a reference to hospitality. Um, maybe to forgiveness, maybe to tolerance, maybe to acceptance, but certainly to not putting our perception of someone else's sinfulness above our obligation to show them the grace of God. So how does the grace of God manifest itself? 
How has it manifested itself in ways that are deeply concerning here in the United States of America, within both the Catholic and Protestant branches of the Church, in just the last three or four years? We've seen some examples that I think that are telling and pointed, and I've talked about them before in previous episodes of Inappropriate Conversations. I won't even cite them here. This is a recurring theme to the podcast, and sometimes it appears angrily in that other podcast as a denunciation of Christian hypocrisy, or sometimes it just appears as a question to say, what are we supposed to do with Christians who lie about what the scripture says? What are we supposed to do with Christians who act like when Jesus came, he didn't accomplish anything, or at least he didn't accomplish everything he set out to accomplish. I've asked those questions before. If somebody wanted to go and dive like deeply into my perspective on Scripture, if there's an inappropriate conversations to point to, it's probably inappropriate conversations number 150. That was called Opening the Scriptures. It came out later in the same year that I named Max Licato a different drummer. If Max Licato was March 1st, the Opening the Scriptures podcast was probably somewhere around the end of September. 2014. So there is previous reference material here for the examples I'm going to cite, but I'm going to choose to cite them over here in this context instead and deal with them from a walk the earth perspective. Because as I hope I've already established, this is a directly scriptural question. This is the kind of question that I think would rightly lead someone to say, should I continue to engage in ministry with this set of Christians or not? Or should I go to a different congregation? Should I leave this church, and go to another church to find a place where I can work side by side with other Christians in the ministry of Jesus Christ, recognizing what Jesus Christ said and did, and in some cases, respecting what he did not say intentionally. John's Gospel, chapter 13, does does three things, really, in particular, that I think are, are important for us to understand. First, Unlike the complete nonsense spouted in the movie Religulous by Bill Maher, there is absolutely no question that Jesus numerous times asserts that he has a deity, that he is the Son of God in the sense of having a great deal of supernatural knowledge, not just of the past, but of the future. Not just in John's Gospel. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus predicts that a generation after his crucifixion, the Romans are going to destroy all of Israel and scatter the remaining Jews throughout the, the known globe at the time. So Jesus does assert deity, and here in John chapter 13, he does that in more than one way. So he's talking about his authority over all things, and then establishes his greatness through an oratory, through a statement, and then juxtaposes that immediately against that calling for service. That to those whom give, have, who have been given much, much more will be expected. That the first will be last and the last will be first. That you will know us by our love, not by our power. Uh, things along that line. It appears repeatedly throughout the Gospels. And washing the feet of his disciples before the Last Supper may be a very good, tangible example of Jesus actually walking that talk. Putting his money, proverbially, where his mouth is. So that's the second piece. So Jesus establishes his authority. He knows things that you probably would not expect a man to be able to know. He knows what Judas is up to, what he's about to do. He knows what Judas is going to do before Judas even does it, perhaps. So he's got that authority. Then he, he compares that to the humility that he expects his disciples to show. The things he expects us to overlook. 
Because overlooking the things about other people that we could perhaps righteously or self-righteously stand in judgment over is a dam blocking the grace of God. It's a blockade. It's a roadblock. It stops the flow of the love Jesus was trying to share with the world into and through the world. It comes in with an attitude that says, until you are worthy, you cannot have, have God's grace, which is diametrically opposed to what Jesus was teaching. That even though you are unworthy, you are still getting God's grace, but I want you to go and do likewise. And that's the third piece. The third piece was, even at this moment of providing a pretty clear, although maybe startling juxtaposition in his teaching, he was telling and then showing and then doing and then telling us to do likewise. But he had to review that teaching with a couple of disciples who just didn't get it. Peter, twice. Once by saying, hey, no way you're going to serve me. You're the king, I'm not. And when Jesus corrects him on that, he goes from ditch to ditch, as the saying goes. He goes from one extreme to the other, from saying, because you're Lord and I'm not, I'm not going to let you serve me at all, to saying, well, hey, if you're going to serve me, then let's go all in. And Jesus corrected him there too and said, no, I I am showing you the love that I need to show you, but I'm still expecting you to take care of yourself, that you've got your own work to do, Peter. Um, and so there's that. And then later at the end, he calls Peter's bluff again at the very end of the chapter, where Peter is brazenly saying, I will die for you. Ironically, what we know of church history does suggest that Peter ultimately would die for Jesus, die for evangelism at the very least. But at this point in time, Jesus is saying, yeah, you're not ready. Um, don't don't try to big talk me before the night is over you're going to deny you know me three times that is picked up later in gospel passages uh, dealing with the immediate um, arrest of jesus and the precursor to the crucifixion i don't need to go there just yet to speak the words i want to speak so what are my examples for situations where it would be right for the world to look and say does the church really believe jesus washed the feet of judas does the church believe Jesus did that on purpose? When Jesus said, go and do likewise in one manner of speech or another, was he saying, go and do likewise for everybody except that Judas guy over there? Or did he wash his feet, sit at the table, share the meal with him, and even send him on his way? So who are the Judases of our society? This is not unlike what I've asked before on previous episodes of Walk the Earth, uh, Inappropriate Conversations, Interviews I've done on like the Tech Support Rich show, episode seven many years ago of one of the incarnations of Tech Support Rich on simplysyndicated.com. I've alluded to it, in fact, on interviews with Take Him With You that are probably still available at the website for takehimwithyou.com. A couple of conversations with Greg many years ago, but maybe around this same time, maybe 2013, 14, somewhere in that ballpark. The passage of Matthew chapter 25, near the end of that chapter, called The Great Judgment. Jesus refers to kind of the notion of the least of these, and that he tells uh, everyone who is there, not just his disciples, but other followers and people who are listening to him speak, that they will know that they are in the presence of God by how they treat the least of these. That if you, if you are, um, finding the best spot in the, in the sanctuary for the rich people and treating the poor people like crap, that you're betraying Jesus. Uh, James calls this out in his letter to the church later, near the end of the New Testament. And Jesus kind of shares the concept with numerous examples in that passage of Matthew chapter 25 called The Great Judgment. And my question every time I speak to that is, do we really think that Jesus' 
four instances are the only instances. Jesus is talking about homeless people and um, starving people, uh, people who are in prison, people who are in the hospital with debilitating illnesses. He's referring to all those people as examples. He's basically saying, whatever you do to show love, grace, and care for the least of these, you've done for me. And whatever you fail to do to show love, grace, and care for the least of these, you have failed to have done to me. And the stakes are so high. The biblical historians call Matthew chapter 25 the great judgment because Jesus is saying, who is going to be part of my kingdom and who is going to be cast out into the void? The people who show love for the least of these are in my kingdom. And the people who don't, no matter how religious they are, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how many times they've read the Bible, no matter whether they voted a certain agenda that a political party suggests is the way to heaven, none of those things are going to matter at all. What matters is the love you show toward the least of these. But is the concept of the least of these limited to homeless, hungry, sick, and in prison? Or was Jesus just using for instances, examples, ways to get people's minds oriented to what they're supposed to do? Because I would suggest that in the case of Judas, you're not talking about somebody who was poor. John's gospel elsewhere alleges that Judas not only was the treasurer who took care of the money, but he actually stole whatever he wanted to. So Jesus, so Judas, not a poor man, as far as that goes. Not hungry either. He was at the Last Supper with Jesus, eating from the very hand of Jesus at the very end. And not thirsty. He, again, was at the Last Supper. Then uh, not imprisoned, although he would be in a prison of his own mind by the end of the gospels, the, um, you know, dealing with crucifixion and eventually resurrection. But Judas, I think, doesn't fit those perfectly and squarely, meaning that it's fair to ask whether the least of these can also include, as Lucato describes it, our betrayers, our enemies. Takes us back to an episode of Inappropriate Conversations called Jesus Quote Bubble. In that particular episode, I actually kind of went all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most important passages in the Bible for me. This was Inappropriate Conversations number 180, February of 2016, probably right around Valentine's Day that year, if I recall correctly. And the Sermon on the Mount has several passages about turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, loving your enemy. Uh, and so Jesus clearly means in the Great Judgment, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously. And here in this passage from John 13, he means to be talking to us about love of enemy. So if the church collective or the majority of the church, say half the church, just to be extremely generous, has decided that gay and lesbian people are their enemy and that gay marriage is the problem that God is calling them to solve through whatever means necessary and that you've seen churches uh, fire staff over even being benignly indifferent to uh, marriage equality as an issue. That not being sufficiently angry about it could get you fired from your position as a church secretary in the Roman Catholic Church, just to use an example. Or if a couple being married and of the same gender would be the kind of thing that would make a Protestant church in Florida decide that, well, I can't, my church can't have any role to play, and I as a pastor can't have any role to play in the burial of this person, despite the fact that this person had been a church member and this person's parents still were church members, that maybe they were closer to excommunicating and or shunning the parents of the deceased than showing genuine love and care. 
how close is that to washing the feet of Judas? Because I have two questions in my mind that I'll kind of hint at before the end of this question and answer time on Walk the Earth. One is whether it makes any sense at all for people to view a happily married gay couple as the enemy, the worst of the worst, the least of these in the first place. But even if you did, I mean, once you decide that these people are your enemy, Jesus gives us an example of what we ought to be doing to show the grace and love of God to the feet of our Judases, whoever they may be. The walk the extra mile, turn the extra cheek easily translates into bake an extra cake. And let me be very clear about this. If I were a politically conservative Christian, and I am conservative about scripture, I take the Bible very, very seriously. Of course, taking the Bible seriously means not taking it in a juvenile, wooden, literalistic way. But I take the Bible very seriously. I'm quite clear that what the Bible tells me is that even if I were opposed for one reason or another to a same-sex couple getting married, if I was one of those Christians who ran a bakery and I was asked to bake them a wedding cake for their wedding and, and either help them top it or tolerate them topping it with two women on top of the cake or two men on top of the cake. The Bible's really clear here. What I should do, in addition to baking the cake exactly as they have described it, with the best ingredients I possibly can, pouring as much prayer and love into that exercise as possible, so that if I'm right and they're wrong and they need a road to Damascus experience, that turning point may come to them while eating cake. My cake. My prayed-for cake. My lovingly and perfectly delivered as paid-for cake. I'd also bake them a second cake free of charge. Why? The Bible says so. Because Jesus said so. And Jesus told us to go and do likewise. So maybe we shouldn't be telling people based on their sexual orientation or their political perspectives or how much they love their children who may or may, may or may not be gay or whether they think that they're willing to give people who are trans the benefit of the doubt while we sort out things about science and psychology that are not collectively and widely understood, that maybe those are examples of washing the feet of Judas and examples of betraying our Lord and Savior, of grabbing that towel off his waist, wrapping it into a knot, and flicking his ass with it. Maybe that would be things like refusing to be uh, at the graveside for the for the funeral of somebody who is gay and married. Maybe that shunning Jesus or throwing the water into his face would be things like telling people that they cannot take communion because of their sexual orientation or that they're not allowed to participate in small group activities, whether that be outside the church but using the building like scouts or inside the church like you know small group ministries or other sort of things just because of who they love or just because of who they've married, that withholding communion from people seems to fly directly in the face of what we find in John's Gospel, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, the, the whole Last Supper and the associated prayers surrounding the Last Supper, where Jesus is not telling us who is and isn't allowed to take communion. Jesus is saying, I wash the feet of all of you, including the one who's going to betray me, you need to go and do likewise. I'm the Lord of all creation. I have all knowledge. I see all things and I'm fully aware of what I'm doing here and I'm doing it on purpose and I'm including Judas in it because you need to understand that I'm expecting you to show this love and share this grace as 
I have demonstrated. These are powerful words. These are words that I think would keep me up at night if I were a priest or pastor denying communion to somebody or refusing to baptize a child because it had been adopted by a gay couple or messing up the funeral services of somebody. There was a newspaper here recently that didn't refuse to run the obituary column for the death notice of somebody who had died. They ran it, but they doctored it. They removed all references to one of the children of the deceased because that person was gay and married. So the obituary was submitted. It was one of those paid obituaries, and it was only run in a truncated form to blank out the existence of the gay child and the gay in-law. These are amazing grievances against our Lord and Savior. These are diametrically opposed to what he said we should do. And they fly in the face of what Paul taught in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I believe it was 15, where he's talking about communion and he's basically putting the onus for whether it's appropriate for you to take communion on the person in line approaching the bread and the cup, not on the church, whether pastor, bishop, pope, or church secretary, to decide who and who is not allowed. As we take the letters of Paul seriously and uh, Luke's writings and the Acts of the Apostles seriously, in other words, if we take the Lord himself seriously, God's telling us, I got this. If someone's committing an act of blasphemy by standing at the Eucharist at the point of taking communion, I don't need you local church pastor to protect me, the Lord of the universe, by making sure that this guy doesn't snub his nose in my face or flip me the bird. I got this. Paul refers to people who are taking communion in a joking, blasphemous manner as becoming gravely ill. In the Acts of the Apostles, there's a group of people who lied to the church about but what they were giving to the church and taking credit for things they hadn't done. And God apparently smites them on the spot. Both the male and female members of that couple who were engaging in fraud fell over dead in the presence of Peter and the disciples. God is fully capable of defending his own holiness. He doesn't need help from petulant, inappropriately proud people like us. We need to be recognizing the fact that if Jesus is willing to wash the feet of someone like Judas, then we don't have anybody in our world, likely as not, who we have a claim of being as aggrieved by as Jesus' Jesus's relationship with Judas. But even if you do, even if you might argue that you've got somebody in your world who treated you far worse than that, kind of strange you wouldn't be alive if that were true, but far worse than that, Jesus isn't providing any loopholes. There is no fine print. There's no appendix. There's no exception. Love one another. Do as I have done for you. Get off your high horse and wash the feet, even, or perhaps even especially, for your enemies. For what you've done for those you might deign to call the least of these, Jesus says, that is what you have done for God incarnate. Let me end with a quick word on affirming. Because this is actually... Where I think I struggle a little bit, I want to be and feel that I'm in the process of being part of a church that is that's truly qualified to be called an affirming church. I wouldn't have walked the earth from where I was to where I am now if I didn't feel like that was true. 
But I also have some interesting kind of complex relationships with the concept of ally. And maybe I'll just share what I wrote after church last Sunday to sort of sum up kind of how I feel about it. Because there's a certain complexity. And at no point am I being critical of myself as an ally or any other person as an ally. But I am looking further down the road. I'm driving high in my steering, as they used to say when I was a kid in driver education class. It's not just the car in front of me or the two cars in front of me I'm worried about. I want to see a future where there's no more construction signs. And that's kind of what I think of when I consider these two concepts. One being the concept of affirming, and the other being the concept of ally. Actually, my dream is a faith where the concept of affirming is so unnecessary that it makes no sense to consider. I feel the same way about ally. I am only one as people say that I am. Of course, I hope it's true, but the goal is to be part of a community so holistically complete that the concept of ally is totally unnecessary. It's just true that we're not there yet. And whether we cast ourselves in the role of Judas, rightly expecting, having heard the same things Jesus said that all the other apostles heard Jesus say, that our feet ought to be getting washed at our moment of greatest need, that our sexual orientation, our race, uh, our politics should not be a factor on whether or not we get visited in the hospital at the time of a surgery or visited at the graveside at the time of the death of a loved one, that that should be true. It's also true that we need to remember that we've got some people who, by their intent to make us their enemies, could be at risk of making themselves our enemies too. Our obligation to wash the feet, to turn the other cheek, to bake the extra cake, is true whether you look at the enemy question from one perspective or the other. So part of the reason that I try to be an ally on both sides, someone who hasn't walked away from the church and written the whole thing off, but at the same time isn't walking away from this concept of ally and this notion of being an affirming community, whether inside the church or out in the world, is because I don't think I can ever say for sure which side of the wash basin I'm supposed to be standing on. I just know I'm not going to give myself some lazy blasphemous pass that says the words of Jesus don't apply to me. I've been told to go and do likewise. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Lord, I love this time of year. It's um, it's difficult and challenging for me at work. It impacts how I record podcasts like Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. But it helps to focus on particular aspects of, of Scripture this time of year, to be hearing this uh, collective story told, and to be looking back at the year that was, or years past, and asking myself whether I'm on the same path that I was on before. Has my journey, under your guidance, hopefully, taken me somewhere new? Lord, help us as a church to be less afraid of those somewhere news that all of us are encountering on our path. Lord, help us to realize that you've got this, and that if we take seriously what we so often say about you being in control, Lord, then that means that I don't have to police the behavior of others, and that refusing to serve someone communion, refusing to pray for them at a time of death or birth, is a mistake. And that I know this, 
because you didn't just teach it, you showed it. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And thank you for that all that is to come as we continue to remember your your key moments in the gospel story in the next few weeks. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. I do have a question queued up for a future walk the earth, but since I'm not sure exactly when that will come, meaning I'm not sure whether some other question won't sneak in and take its place, I'll hang on to the next thoughts for now and simply say thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.